Good morning. It's an honor to be here with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, especially honored to have you. Um, if I haven't had a chance to, to meet you, my name is Jason. And I serve as a lead pastor here at Solid Rock and would be honored to get to, to meet you after this service if you have time. Um, so please stop by. I'll be up here at the front. Um, this is an exciting day. We are having our open house on our kids' remodel area. And so after this service, if you haven't um, walked through that area yet, I'm going to encourage you to do that. Um, what we're most excited about has nothing to do with the building or the paint or the cabinets or all the, the fun little stuff we have up there, but we're so excited about the little kiddos who are going to inhabit that space. And this remodel was to create more space for more kiddos and more families to be a part of this amazing redemptive work that God is doing in this church and through this church. And so as you walk through that area today, I want to encourage you to, to, to pray. Um, pray for those kiddos. Pray for those families. Pray for those workers who will work and teach in that area and lead our kiddos to know and love Jesus. And, and let's do so with a vision for the future. Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're not getting any younger. And there's going to come a day where you and I kick the bucket and we're going to pass off this redemptive ministry to the next generation. And a lot of those next generation leaders will step first, foot first in this church by stepping into that area. And so walk through that area with a vision for the future. Pray for those kiddos and those who will be working in that area. We're so excited about that. I'm excited about the elder affirmation at uh, it'll take place this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Everybody is invited. This is a church-wide celebration of what God is doing in the lives of these two new elder candidates um, as we pray for them, lay hands on them, and affirm them into the position of elders. And so I'm encourage you to come be a part of that this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Um, a lot of exciting things happening. August starts this next week, which means that um, our fall semester is getting ready to kick off here. That means community groups are getting ready to fire off. Men's and women's ministry are getting ready to fire off. Wednesday night, Awana ministry is getting ready to fire back off. And so we're excited about that. A couple of dates I wanted to, um, to share with you this morning, maybe write them down. Um, on August the 17th, um, uh, it's a, I believe it's a Wednesday night, August the 17th, whatever night that is, 6 o'clock, um, be here, men. We're going to kick off our fall semester of men's ministry. I think we're doing a tailgate party again out here. So 6 o'clock on the 17th, uh, plan on being here. Then ladies on the 24th, a week later, um, that's your night. We're going to be kicking off our fall women's ministry with an event here on the campus as well at 6 o'clock. And that same night, coinciding with women's uh, ministry kickoff, will be um, our back-to-school party. So from the littles through sixth grade, um, bring them with you because they're going to have a back-to-school party that same night. That's the 24th of August. And so um, for those events, we do need you to register so we can get the head count for the food. We're doing food, and so we just need to know about how many are coming. So if you could jump on the website, register for those events, let us know you're coming uh, so we can have enough food uh, for you and your friends uh, to come be a part of that. We're excited. August is almost here. All right, as we continue our um, sermon series, Even Sinners Such As I, uh, we're talking about how Jesus came to the, to the earth to save sinners, <laughs> even ones like me, even the lowest of lows, even sinners like me. And so we're walking through this summer, sermon series together to look at how God meets us in our lowest of lows to redeem us for our good and his glory. And we're getting a chance to hear stories from staff and elders about how this redemptive work has worked, um, has played itself out in their lives. And so this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, um, we do put Bibles just like this one 
um, under the seats around you. And if you don't own a Bible, it's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. So take that home. Uh, nobody's going to um, tackle you if they see you walking out of here with one of these. This is, this is for you. We want you to have this. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we're going to be looking today um, at what I would propose to you as the greatest miracle of all, the miracle of redemption. Now, at Solid Rock, we believe in a God who works miracles, not only in the Bible, but still today on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. We've witnessed the, the miraculous work of God here in, in and through Solid Rock Church millions and thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and trillions of times, right? Just all over the place. Sometimes we recognize the miracles and sometimes we don't. But we believe in a God who is miraculously working in every moment of every day. And we know that the God of the Bible is a miracle worker, right? This, the Bible begins with God and his miraculous work to create through speaking things into existence. We see miracles all throughout the Old Testament from the flooding of the earth uh, to the confusing of the languages at the Tower of Babel. Uh, we see God's miraculous work in the 10 plagues uh, there in Egypt, where God uses these plagues to set his people free from captivity and slavery. We see God's parting the Red Sea, parting the Jordan River, on and on again. We see the miraculous work of God through the Old Testament. Jesus comes in the New Testament and steps into the world he created and continues to work miracles. He raises the dead, he walks on water, he feeds the 5,000, he heals the blind. Miracle after miracle, and of course, at the end of his life, he willingly lays his life down on a Roman cross and dies for us, then miraculously raises from the dead on the third day. Beginning the church era, the beginning, the inception of the church, we see these miracles at Pentecost, we see through the apostles, we see dead coming to life, we see the sick being healed, miracle after miracle playing out in the church era. And today what we're going to look at is what I would propose to you is the greatest miracle of all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world... Shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. And he addresses who he's speaking to at the very beginning in verse 26 when he says, For consider your calling brothers. And this Greek word is the word that means brothers, like in the sense of like mankind. So he's meaning men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ. So he clearly wants us to know who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Christians, both men and women. He says to us, hey, Christians, come here for a minute. I want you to think about something. I want you to consider your calling. Now, what he's asking us 
calling us, encouraging us to think of is our invitation into the kingdom of God. That moment where by faith, you and I step into the kingdom of God. He's saying, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about something. Remember that moment when you became a Christian? Now, some of us were kids, some of us were teenagers, some of us adults, maybe even some of you seniors in life. When you made that decision and you stepped into the kingdom of God, you answered that calling and that invitation from Jesus to become a Christian. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, think about how old you are. He says this, think about who you were. And think about the circumstances surrounding your life when you became a Christian. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. And not many of you were from noble birth. Now, in a way, he kind of covers us all there, right? So maybe you were born of noble birth, but he got you on the wise part. (laughs) And if he didn't get you on the wise part, he got you on the powerful part, right? Because... You and I are fallen human beings. We weren't born with power and nobility. We were born with frailty and weakness. He says, I want you to think about that for a minute, church. What does it mean that when God called you, he invited you, you were weak, lowly, and not wise, a.k.a. ignorant or foolish? Now he goes on in verse 27 and 28 and he says this. But God chose. That phrase is so powerful. Because what God is saying to me through this passage is, Jason, remember that moment when God called you. Remember how you weren't powerful, you were weak. And you weren't from noble birth, you were from lowly birth. Remember, Jason, how you weren't wise, but you were ignorant. But even though those things were true, God still chose you. That's a powerful phrase, isn't it? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world. So here's what Paul saying to you and I, Christians, remember that moment when God called you. In that moment, God chose what was weak, what was foolish, and what was lowly. That's you and me. And he did this in order to work through us. See how he did something through each one of us? He worked through the foolish to shame the wise. He he worked through the weak to shame the powerful He worked through the lowly and those who are not to bring to shame those that are. That's you and me. Now think about that. Despite all of our disqualifications, God came to us, chose us, invited us, and called us anyway. And look at what he says next. So that... Here's why God did that. No human being might boast or brag or be arrogant or be prideful in the presence of God. Listen, Christians. God doesn't love you because you're lovable. Think about that. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to the earth, Jesus, to die for sinners like us. Why? 
God doesn't love us because of our lovability. God loves us because he's the great lover. He's good at loving stuff. That's what Paul's saying. God doesn't love you because you're easy to love. Matter of fact, you're hard to love. Why? Because you're lowly, you're weak, and if that doesn't get it, you're dumb, you're foolish. Now, think about how hard it is for you to love people like that. Case in point, right? Those are hard people to love. And so what Paul's saying is like, let's, let's, let's think about this for a minute. God didn't come to us and bring love to us because we're lovable. He came to us and loves us because he's the great lover. God has redeemed our lives, not because he saw your potential. He has redeemed you because he's the great redeemer. He's good at it. He's so good at it, he can take lowly stuff and make it useful. He can take weakness and make it strong. He can take the mess that we make of our lives and he can make it beautiful. That's how good he is. So that no human being might do what? Boast, brag. Receive credit for it. He also gives us some insight into this. If that's true then, God's response to our prayers to him is not based on our expectations of what he should do. Now think about that. This gives us insight into how prayers work. So, so when we come to God and we pray, he's not sitting there waiting on your wisdom. You don't bring wisdom to the table. We bring foolishness to the table, right? When God operates and acts, it's not based on our power. It's based on his power. We're weak, right? And so, so it doesn't work like this where we pray for something as a church, and then on Tuesday, one of us finally prays the right prayer and comes up with this great idea for God, and then the next weekend, we come in and get, God answered our prayers, and oh, just by the way, if you didn't know this or not, on Tuesday, I had this great idea, and I prayed it to God, and he was like, oh, finally, somebody came up with a good answer. Finally, somebody is wise. No, Paul's saying that. We don't bring those things to the equation. Bring, bring your request before God. Pray. Give him some ideas on what you think he should do. He doesn't operate based on your ideas, though. That's why we pray like Jesus. Now, not my will be done. Don't do what I think should happen. I'll wreck the place. And how often do we bring our prayer requests to God? We say, this is where my need in my life. This is where I'm hurting. This is where I'm broken. Oh, by the way, God, here's how I want you to fix it. And then we sit back and say, well, until he does it this way, he hasn't answered my prayer. Paul said, Really? You want God to do foolish stuff? That's what you're asking him. Paul said, let's remember this. God answers our prayers in such a way that no man gets to boast. Nobody gets to brag and go, oh, by the way, I gave God that idea. Just so you all know that. (laughs) Paul says, no. Consider your calling. It wasn't you. You didn't do that. God did it. God chooses us, not based on what we have to offer him, but based on what he has to offer us. Think about that. God has chosen you, not based on what you can offer him, but based on what he has to offer to you. And Paul is saying to us, this work that God does in us to redeem us is a miracle. 
It's a miracle in which there's no other explanation. Right? You know, look at my life and go, well, it makes sense that you're a preacher. I mean, you were raised in church. Mommy and daddy sent you to private Christian school. Right? No. Five, eight, five years old, my dad was in prison for narcotics. My mom was a single mom working two jobs. My older sister and I were raising ourselves. It doesn't make sense. God says, I'm going to do what doesn't make sense in your life. The miracle of redemption. In verse, 20, or verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You're in him. Now, he's going to tell us what in him means, but he first wants us to understand it's because of him that you're in Christ, not because of you or your mom or your dad or your community group leader or your pastor or your elders. It's because of him. That's why you're in Christ. And then he goes on to say, here's what that means. He's become wisdom to us from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Those are big words. Let's just unpack them and make them practical. What does it mean that you are now righteous because you're in Christ? Here's what that means. It means that God sees you. He's looking at you right now. This is going to blow some of your minds. It should because <laughs> we're lowly and foolish and ignorant and all those other things. God sees you, though, right now, not according to worldly standards, right? He doesn't see you according to your lowliness and your ignorance and your weakness, Because you're in Christ through faith, God sees you now as righteous. Where did that righteousness come from? From Jesus. So to see yourself as anything less than perfectly righteous is to see Jesus as less than perfectly righteous. Because it's his righteousness you're wearing. It's his righteousness that you have. Paul's saying, like, listen, church, because of Christ, him you're in Christ and because you're in Christ you have the righteousness of Christ and then he mentions sanctification which you guys know I love this understanding of sanctification I say it this way often it is every day becoming what you already are in Christ here's here's the explanation of that by faith in Christ you are perfectly righteous yet this past week you were a jerk this past week you messed up this past week you were selfish This past week, you hurt somebody, right? Perfectly righteous, yet here on earth, walking through this life, we're not perfect yet. So sanctification is the process of every day becoming more and more what you already are in Christ. And one day, it'll line up. The day you step out of this temporary life into eternity, it all will line up, and you will be forever perfectly righteous. But Paul says, listen, God's not working in your life because you brought anything to the table. Matter of fact, despite the fact that you had nothing to bring to the table, you're now in Christ because God's a great lover. He's a great redeemer. He's working this out in you. He sees you as righteous and you were every day becoming what you already are in Christ's sanctification. And then he says this, and not only that, but you have redemption. Now, that word redemption in the Bible gets used in three primary applications, okay? Um, It means to to gain something back of value that was lost. That's the one way it gets used, redemption. 
It also means to regain back a position that was lost. And a third way it gets used is to have a relationship restored. So it's this idea of getting back what has been lost. Your position. I don't know if you know this or not. I was thinking about the garden this past week in one of my uh, quiet times with the Lord. I was just walking early in the morning. And in the last week in July, we had some really cool mornings where I was at. I don't know about you, but where I was at, we had some cool mornings. So at sunrise, just walking out in the country, enjoying just God's creation. And there was a coolness to the morning. I was thinking about Genesis chapter 3, where God came to Adam and Eve in the coolness of the garden. You know, that was a position that they had that they lost through the fall. That privilege of walking in the presence of God in the coolness of the morning. Well, what does redemption mean? We have regained that position, church. God doesn't hang out with us because we're noble and wise and have all these things to offer. That's what Paul's saying. He's blowing this idea up. Listen, but God chose you anyway, and he's restored your position. You get to walk with God in the coolness of the morning every moment of your day. Not only has our position been restored, but our relationship has been restored. Remember in the garden, after the fall, what happened? Adam and Eve began to push back and hide from God. But Paul's saying, no, 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 that's been redeemed. You have redemption. That's been restored. God wants you to walk in fellowship with him. Flesh, we say, but wait a second, I don't deserve that. Paul goes, I know, that's what these earlier verses were about. But wait, if God knows all the things I've done, he won't want to walk with me. And Paul says, no, no, he he knows. He chose you anyway. That's the miracle of redemption. Now, I said something earlier, I I want to back up. The miracle of redemption is the greatest of all miracles. Now, I want to encourage you to think about miracles in two different ways. Short-term miracles and long-term miracles or eternal miracles. Because, see, we have two different types. I know that may sound strange, but we have two different types. Uh, Take Lazarus, for example. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but he had to die again. So that was just a short-term miracle. The eternal miracle happened after he died again. You, you with me? So like for, for the blind man who was, his sight was, was restored, and he had sight, or maybe the one who saw for the first time, that was a miracle, right? But that miracle was temporary, right? It wasn't until he receives his resurrected body that he finally has eternal sight and he can see clearly. Even with restored sight, he didn't see things perfectly. The thing about this, like my... Uh, you more than likely have a family member who struggles with some kind of physical ailment. Maybe you've experienced the, the miracle of healing and have seen it or personally experienced have seen it in, uh, in my own wife's healing and my father-in-law's healing, cancer being healed either through prayer alone or prayer with the work of medicine and doctors working. However it happens, and God works it out, just the miracle of healing. But, but here's the thing. Even if your cancer is healed, right, that's a miracle. God deserves credit and glory for that, but we still have to die. Right, so I'm not in any way downgrading miracles. What I think Paul wants us to do is upgrade the miracle of redemption. He wants to say all those things are powerful and amazing and they're the fingerprints of God working in your life. But let me tell you about something even better than that. The fact that God chose you. That 
is the miracle of redemption. I say it's the greatest miracle of God for two reasons. One, because it's the most costly to God. It's the most costly. Think about what it cost Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had to walk into town. He had to find the house. And then he had to say, Lazarus, come forth. That's what it cost him. Or think about where he healed blind people. I think about the, 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 the healing where he spit in the mud, dirt, and he made mud and t- put it on. Like, that's all it cost him. But your redemption was far more expensive than that. Our redemption be- began when Jesus momentarily left behind his glory and his renown and his fame that was due to him, and by choice, he, he left it behind and stepped into the world he created. And that's where the cost began. He began to feel our pain. He knew what it was like to cry. He, he understood the taste of a tear and the feeling of betrayal and loneliness and the agony of being falsely accused and humiliated and spat upon and punched and unrobed and scourged and beaten and tortured and death itself. All of those things are part of the price that Jesus paid for our redemption. So I'd say that redemption is the most costly of all healings from God's perspective, but number two, it's the most beneficial for us. It's the most beneficial for us. Why? Because this is, this is our eternity. This is our eternal healing, our eternal restoration through what Christ has done for us. Verse 31. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts or brags boast in the Lord. Now, our redemption plays out in a thousand different ways on a daily basis. Your salvation impacts more than your eternity. That's a lot, but more than that. It impacts your relationships with others. It impacts the way you see the world. It impacts where you go to get your joy and your strength. Your redemption plays out in a lot of different ways. I would say this, probably one of the the most vivid places to watch redemption work outside of salvation is in the restoration of relationships. You know, those relationships that just seem like they've come to that place where there's just no hope. I have the honor of, of like having a front row seat um, to God's redemption in marriages here around Solid Rock Church. I'm just looking around the room, making eye contact with one after another, where I've seen firsthand God's redemptive work in marriage, right? And what we have to understand about our problems with people and relationships, especially marriage, okay, it's not an, an, an incompatibility issue. It's not, a, it's not a personality issue. It's a sin issue. That's why my wife and I struggle, because I bring sin into the relationship, and because she brings sin into the relationship. And so we don't just need help on how to manage our personalities. We need something bigger than that. And time after time, I've had the opportunity to work with couples who've come to that place where they said, there is no more hope here. This thing is ruined. I just need to know the easiest way to get out where God won't be mad at me. Some of you have thought that before, right? I just need to figure out how to get out of this thing where it's all her fault. 
And I've had this honor and this privilege of sitting with couples and saying, listen, that's not redemption. Redemption restores relationships. Yeah, but ours is messed up. I know, because you're foolish and you're weak and you're dumb. Like me. Right? That's what redemption is for. When we get to that place where it doesn't seem possible and, and yet it becomes possible. I was sitting with a couple back here. I used to counsel in this back room. Um, it's been about three years ago, and, and uh, they gave me permission to share this part of their story. I'll never forget. I began counseling with her first. I didn't know her very well. She came to me and said, I just need to meet with you. First time I sat down with her, she basically said this, hey, my marriage is done. It's done. There's no hope in my marriage. I need to know what, what to do. I said, okay, well, tell me more about what's going on. Well, I just found out all this stuff about him and things he's been doing, and this thing is just, it's just done. Course. And I began to try to press in with some hope and say, listen, let's, let's talk about what God can do because I've seen God do some powerful things and like, like God can restore this. And I'll never forget her saying back to me, listen, I don't want God to restore it because I don't want what I used to have. Some of you have thought that before. If, if God fixes this thing, then the best news that I'm hearing right now is it's going to go back to the way it was. And that's what she thought. And I said, listen, no, I'm so glad you said that because Listen, God doesn't want you to have back what you used to have. And she looked at me kind of strange and funny, like, well, what, is, what do you mean by that? I said, because, listen, what you used to have is not what God wants for you. He actually wants something better. So I'm not asking you to believe that God can put it back like it was. That would be a miracle in and of itself. But here's what I'm asking you to believe, something bigger than that, something even more miraculous than that. God not only wants to restore this thing, he wants to make it better than what it used to be. This look of, you're right. And I said, okay, so the first step is this. We need to get him in here. Oh, he'll never come. Okay. Let's pray. Pray for him. Ask God to work. And then why don't you try this? Just going out and why don't you invite him? So she did. She invited him. She sent me an email. Pastor, you're never going to believe. He said he would meet with you. I'm sure he's up to something. This is just part of his plan. You know, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. It probably is. I'll give you that. Let's invite him anyway. Let's just see what happens. And he comes, he comes in, I sit down with both of them, and we start working on the marriage and experiencing God's redemption. And I'll never forget, about three sessions in, four sessions in, they come in, they sit down, and I always ask, okay, tell me, how are things going? First words out of his mouth, tear comes down his face. He said, Pastor, I feel like right now we're in the middle of a miracle. He was. And it had nothing to do with how awesome of a husband he could be or how much work he could put into this thing, it was 100% God's redemptive work so that no man may boast. It was truly and purely a miracle. Just had lunch with that couple this past week, three years later, and they met with me to ask me to lead them in a ceremony of renewing their vows for their 45th anniversary. I know, that's, that's God's redemptive work. And that's what... Paul is pointing out here to us, listen, folks, don't forget who you were. You didn't bring anything to the table. All the good that's happening in your life is God's redemptive work. The greatest miracle of all is God's redemption in our lives. God chooses us in our weakness in order to redeem us by working in us and through us for his glory and his glory alone. 
He takes what is weak and he makes it strong and then he uses it to save the world. Some of you didn't even hear me. I can tell by the look on your face you weren't even paying attention. God takes what is weak, makes it strong, and then uses it to save the world. You're sitting here today as a part of the church. The church is about 2,000 years old. And think about this. We haven't wrecked the place yet. All of our attempts to derail the church and to distort the church and to distort the gospel, and yet the church prevails despite us. Think about that. The folks who led the church before us, they were lowly and foolish and weak just like us. And God says, listen, I'm doing it that way so you'll know who's doing it. God works through us despite us. This is the essence of redemption. God redeems us not because of how lovable we are, not because of the potential we have, but he redeems us to display his power as the great redeemer. In our redemption, God chooses us not based on what we have to offer him, but solely and purely based on what he has to offer us. Through Christ, we have personally witnessed the greatest miracle of all, God's miraculous power and work and redemption in our lives. I don't know how many people are in this room, and I don't even know fully how many of you are saved. I know a lot of you are, but as you look around the room, you're witnessing miracles all around you. Those who by faith have said, I will respond to this invitation and step into the kingdom of God and become a child of God. And that's where the redemptive work begins. And for those of you who are saying, that sounds impossible, it's supposed to sound impossible. God wants it to sound impossible because he doesn't want you to think you can do it. Or that I can do it. Or that your community group leader can do it. Or that your friend who's a Christian can do it. God wants you to look at salvation and go, man, that's impossible. And that's where God says, that's right. Because I don't want any human being to have any footing to boast. I want you to have only one boast, and that is what? God did this. God did this. I want to land here and lead us in a time of prayer. And after we pray together, um, we're going to get a chance to hear um, a redemptive story um, from Jason and Jordan Martin. Uh, Jason and Jordan are both on staff here. Some of you have known them for years and you know their redemption story. Many of you have never even heard of what God has done in their marriage. And you're going to get a chance to hear um, that in just a moment. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to listen to their story. Once the video is done, our prayer partners are going to be at the front of the room and the back of the room. Um, they're here for you to pray with you. I don't know what's going on in your life. Uh, maybe there's a, broke, a piece of brokenness or a struggle or a pain, something you want the church praying for. Come grab one of them. Or maybe you're here today, and you're listening to this, and you're going, wait a second, I want in on some of that redemption. How do I get in on that? Would you come grab one of our prayer partners and let them talk with you about what it means to become a Christian and let them pray for you? Our worship team will also be up here leading us in worship. And for those of us who are in Christ, I hope that what you will be singing about is how God has miraculously worked in your life for redemption. I hope that is going to overflow in the song that we sing together. Let's pray, and then we're going to listen to Jason and Jordan's story. Um, Father God, we thank you. Oh, God, you've been so good to us. And God, we've been reminded this morning that our acceptance into your kingdom, into your family, is, is not based on our 
meeting of some sort of list of prerequisites, God. Matter of fact, you just remind us this morning that it's because we were disqualified that you came to us. And you chose to love disqualified human beings. You chose to love those who weren't strong enough to save or to love themselves. God, you chose to love human beings that were so foolish that we thought we could find joy and pleasure and security in the things of this world and you chose to love us anyway. God, we praise you for your redemption. And now, God, I pray that if any person is here today and has not experienced the goodness of your redemptive work, that today would be the day of redemption, God. God, speak through the Martin's story, work in us and stir in us that we might respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Jason Martin. I'm the worship minister here at Solid Rock. Uh, we've been attending Solid Rock for a little over 11 years, of, which most of that time, kind of since we, we came on board here, we've, we've plugged in and, and I've been involved with the worship ministry and some other teams along, along the way over the past few years. And uh, This is my wife, Jordan. Hi, I'm Jordan Martin, and I serve as the head of operations here at Solid Rock, and I've been on staff for a little over four years. Well, we've been married for for a little over 13 years. Um, we've got two children, Faith and Cash. And then as of recently, we, we have two more living with us, her niece, Kira, and nephew, Christian. Uh, they've been with us since a little before spring break. And we, we've just been really excited to have uh, a large family under one roof. I came to know Christ when I was about 16 or 17 years old. Um, and actually, had, I was, it was a, a really deep experience because what, what happened was I was in the hospital got really right at death's doorstep and in that moment in time for me I feel like that's really when when I accepted Christ into my heart as my savior. I accepted Christ when I was 15 I think and um, remember asking you know those big questions as a teenager but I knew I loved Jesus and I knew I wanted to pursue him. So before we got married I had been involved with music um, all the way since really middle school uh, so music was really the only passion other than sports. And I got out of, out of school and sports really wasn't it. So music was, was my, my common denominator. And um, we got married in 2005. And so we've been married for, for 13 years. Um, but, but the beginning of marriage and really the first half of marriage so far, um, there, there were a lot of things we had to learn. There were a lot of hard things we got to walk through. Um, you know, for me, like I mentioned earlier, music was a driving force in my life, and that was really the only thing that, that I was comfortable with, the only thing I knew how to do, uh, the only thing that was always there for me that was consistent, and so it was important to me. She had worked really hard at, at school, and I was working really hard at music, and those things didn't change for us, even though our family was growing. and. Her career was taken off, and, and the music kept going and kept taking off. And I think, you know, look, being able to look back, what happened was we both started this this route where we were separating from each other, feeling like we were doing the right things still, um, but allowing things and careers and success 
to drive a wedge through us. And, you know, I, I, I didn't realize it. You know, I just, I was leaving the house, so to speak, with the door wide open and just allowing the enemy to creep in because I was gone. And I kept, you know, and then Cash came along. That's really mm -hmm. when the band was taken off. And, and you had gone into uh, school again. Yeah, um, Cash was six months old and Faith was two and a half. And I decided to go back and get my MBA. I found myself in a position where um, I was working my way up the corporate ladder. And I had two undergrads, one in English and one in history, but that doesn't really translate well into the business world. And so I decided to go back and get my MBA. And so here we are with a young family and Faith is two and a half and Cash is six months old and Jason's gone all the time and I'm working on a master's degree and we really just learned how to live two separate lives and um, not for the better. It was rough and, and during this time, I found myself really um, taking on the leadership role. I was the one making the decisions. I was you know, doing our finances and picking out what car we needed to buy and where we were gonna go on vacation and you know, how to discipline our kids and basically just feeling that absence from Jason's leadership being gone from our home. And the hard part about that is that I have control issues anyway. So um, it was like the perfect storm. So, you know, he's gone and there's a void and then my control issues is stepping in and trying to manage everything. And it really just led to this perfect storm, like I said, of everything just crashing. And we found ourselves in a really desperate situation. So we did, we set ourselves up really well for, for a disaster. And you know, what ended up happening from that point was there was about a year, a year and a half of just pure pain and, and hardship and, and suffering <clears throat> and, yeah. and a lot of brokenness on both sides. You know, we had really done a, a lot to, to put a marriage together and we had done a lot to, to throw stones at it. And, what we did was we got ourselves in a situation where it was it was impossible for either one of us mm -hmm. to to go in and, and fix what we had done and and it, and it took us falling and we fell hard and we, we always look back to this point in our lives and we call it the mess and and it was one where god was able to come in step in in such a powerful way and show us that he's the only one worthy enough and he's the only one that can fix this and so, gosh, I don't know. It was, it was a battle every single morning, every single day to wake up and to want to do it because there was a lot of feelings towards each other that were hard. Mm -hmm. There were, the, the pain had gotten so deep and, you know, there's a lot of forgiveness and a lot of grace that needed to be given out. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, I just wasn't in a place to do that, honestly. Um, I'd actually moved out with the kids um, for a little while and was sitting in counseling under Jason Williams. And I remember vividly um, a point where I told him that, that like, it's gonna take a miracle for God to be able to put this back together. Like absolutely nothing short of it. I was so done. I was done with the schedule, done with the, of being overcommitted to things, um, done with having to raise two kids on my own. Um, but I was also really done with my selfishness and my pursuit of my careers and um, pursuit of praises and accolades and control. And um, 
And he did. He got came in and, and put it all back together. And, and not just put it back together the way it was. Thank God he did not leave us where we were. I needed to learn how to be a man that could lead my household spiritually in, in every way. It's not something that, that I did. It's not something that I thought, like, you know, I'm obviously the husband. I'm, I'm the father. I bring home money. There's way, way more to it than that. And God showed me so many different steps along that path. And, and, it's, and it's a journey I'm still on. There's so many challenges right now every single day. But God showed us through this whole thing that, that He is with us. He was with us in our mess and our fire. That you know, there's a song that we do here, uh, "Brokenness Aside." He's able to take a mess and make it beautiful. Well, I really had to learn how to be a wife that could fulfill the biblical role um, that God has called me to, and that was hard because I had to learn how to submit to somebody whose leadership I didn't trust. Um, but he showed me how to serve him, and through that just gave me a heart of compassion for him because, I mean, we were like oil and water for a little while. Like, I didn't even want anything to do with him. I didn't want to see him. Um, but God just kept telling me, serve him, serve him, and I did. And I'm so thankful for that because it really changed my heart. I realized, you know, I've been praying for God to change him, but God needed to change me, and he did. I'm so thankful for that. And, and we're, we're so blessed to, to have gotten to the other side of this valley that we walked through. And after you realize that you've gone through this pain and this suffering, you realize that God was with you through every single step of it and that He was doing it and allowing it to happen with intention because He has a plan far greater than anything that I could have ever thought of.